Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, we'll find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. Time for an overall. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Saturday morning here in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, it is a little gloomier than it's been the last few days. Yesterday it was pushing 60 degrees. I've been wearing shorts since last Tuesday. I kid you not. Not wearing shorts this morning. A little cool on the gams, if you get my drift. The coffee's hot, but my legs were a little bit cold, so that's what I'm rolling with. Glad to have you with me again. Um, This is a major announcement. This will be the last podcast. Yeah, this is the last podcast on this particular machine that I'm using. Did I have you for a second? Did I hook you in the cheek a little bit like a bass? Did I grab onto you a little bit by the snarklies? So after 13 years, my trusty Dusty Dell that has been my constant companion, sadly, I'm pretty sure I spend more time with this machine than I do with most people, which does not say much for my social life, apparently. But this uh, Dell I bought back in, like I said, 2011, 12, somewhere in there. Don't exactly recall what uh, year it was. And I wasn't, I had no idea I was going to need it as much as I have. That's for sure. I had one of those, um, when I was living in Upper Michigan, I had one of those, you know, wall units with the gigantic... Uh, monitor wired into the house and I thought laptops were just like a you know a, a one-off Who, what would I need a laptop for well it turns out I need a laptop for just about every freaking thing I've done for almost like I said 12 13 years I have written three of my books on here I have written seven books for other people on this very machine I'm talking about countless hours of podcasting, audiobook production, and every other kind of audio production you can imagine. And I'm a creature of habit. I mean, we're all creatures of habit. Some aren't real good, but this has been a good habit for me to have this machine. Now, it has stickers on it. I got my Northeast Illinois University sticker on it. I got my Coast Guard sticker on it. I also have black electrical tape holding a couple things down, but it has rarely failed me. Uh, I I had the hard drive replaced about six years ago, and I thought, well, that's it. It'll last forever. Well, that's not exactly how it works. But the fact of the matter is that this thing has gone this far with almost no problems, for the most part. I had a couple things here and there, just tiny things, uh, is amazing to me. But I got a computer guy named Zach, and Zach checks in on my stuff remotely because I do so many projects for clients that I have to have this thing, you know, humming along. So over the last two, maybe three years, he's like, look, at some point, it's going to give up the ghost. The last thing you want is to turn on the machine and the machine doesn't turn on. And he's right about that. So I got to, you know, every now and again, we check in and he, you know, he'll do some upgrades for me or whatever. And he keeps pushing the new machine. John, it's time to get in the 21st century and get something different. Being the creature of habit that I am, I like to stick with what I know works. I don't see any reason to change it. What would be the point? Comes right from my old man. 
You know, you use things until they friggin' fall apart. Then you get some duct tape and some glue and a couple of hammers and nails and you, and you patch it all back together. And uh, that doesn't work on computers, from what I understand. So later today, by 7 o'clock tonight actually, uh, the FedEx person will drop off a brand new Dell for me. And I'm a little nervous about meeting this new person in my life. Uh, this machine in front of me here, I should have named it. I never did, but it's kind of like, you know, it's going to be different. Now, this is a 17-inch machine. I've hauled this thing literally all over the world. I've taken it to Trinidad and Tobago. I've taken it on cruises. Uh, if I had a, a you know something to do remotely, I would put it in the bag and off I'd go and plug it in. And it works every single time. So in my mind, it's like everything else, right? It seems to be working good right now. Why would I change that? Well, because I got a guy like Zach saying, John, you got to be prepared for when it doesn't work. So this is a 17-inch Dell. The one I'm going to be getting tonight is a 16-inch Dell. It's getting harder and harder to find the 17-inch. I got pretty good-sized mitts on me, so I need the room to move around on this keyboard. So it's going to be a little bit of adjustment. It's like, you know, going from driving a, I don't know, a Jeep into a Kia, I suppose. And I'll have to have a little bit of, uh, you know, quiet time with this one before I put it in mothballs. It will always be here. It works. Uh, it'll be back up. And it's kind of like in a, in a football game, which we'll get to here in a little bit. You know, you've been the starter for so long, 12 or 13 years. You're the starter. You're up front. You're getting it done. And here comes the young kid behind you, a little slimmer, a little trimmer, a lot younger, maybe a little smaller. And uh, you got to go sit on the bench and get ready for backup just in case you're needed. So that's kind of what's going on here. And it, it is odd. You know, my friend Tom Crum says that we suffer to the extent that we cling to our things. And I'm clinging to this thing right here because it's been this hardworking machine that has allowed me to do everything that I've done. And I'm, I'm fascinated to some degree. It's, not, it's just a, a laptop. There's more technology in this machine than there was in the first freaking lunar module, that's for sure. Keeping that in mind, uh, that's a major shift coming a little bit later today. I have work to do this week. It's a pretty busy week. Uh, Got to tell you, I'm really excited about a couple things. I got to get this machine up and running Monday because Tuesday, I've mentioned this gentleman before on the show, General Mukiyama. He is a highly decorated uh, veteran and uh, incredible human being. And he'll be joining me in the studio. He's coming to my studio on Tuesday in the afternoon, which means I got to clean a lot of this shit up. That's for sure. But I'm so excited to have a real human being in front of me across, you know, the room and uh, on the couch of the studio. Most of the work that I do during the week, podcasting, creation for other people and clients and such like that, you know, I don't see anybody. Uh, I don't see you wherever you're listening to this and whenever you're listening to this. So to have a real human being in front of me, that's a big deal. So I got some stuff to get done uh, to make all that happen. But anyway, I just thought I'd try and, uh, you know, let you know that there's a little bit of uh, separation anxiety with your host this morning. The last day I do a show on this, next Saturday when I crank this thing back up again, it'll be a brand new machine. And... Um, We'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, of course, tomorrow is Super Bowl 58. And if you're a fan of the, um, I think it's on Netflix, called What We Do in the Shadows. This is kind of off-mark, vampire, uh, silly show that I get a big kick out of. They call it the Superb Owl Party. <laughs> I'd never thought of that in my whole life. 
couple of years ago were watching the show, and instead of saying Super Bowl, they kind of moved the letters around, and they called it the Superb Owl Party. Huh? Huh? Wish I was that quick. Anyway, tomorrow, Super Bowl 58. Uh, millions and millions and millions and millions of people are going to be watching this. More than $20 billion is expected to be bet on the Chiefs versus the 49ers. They might have a couple of bucks down on the game. You never know. Television ratings tell the story that last year, Kansas City Chiefs won over the Philadelphia Eagles was viewed by 115.1 million people. It was the most watched Super Bowl in history. Every year, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, of course, when I think of the Super Bowl, I think of my friend Jerry Kramer, who I talked to twice this past week. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to connect him and hook him up and do an interview for this particular show. He was talking about uh, that there was no way that nobody back then, when they did Super Bowl one in 1967, would ever have thought there'd be a second one. And I got some statistics here. Actually, this is from Super Bowl one. This is from the history uh Dot com website, 10 things you may not know about the first superb owl party. It wasn't exactly super. It was kind of slapped together. One team wasn't part of the National League. It was the Packers versus the Chiefs. You can guess who was not part of the NFL. Uh, that would have been the Kansas City Chiefs who are actually playing tomorrow. In June 1966, the venerable National Football League signed an agreement to merge with the upstart seven-year-old AFL after the completion of the 1969 series. In the interim, the two rival leagues agreed to stage an annual season-ending contest between their respective champions. So you had the AFL play in their league and the NFL in their league. And so the first Super Bowl featured the Packers, who had defeated the Dallas Cowboys to win the NFL title against the Kansas City Chiefs, who had beaten the Buffalo Bills to capture the AFL crown. Legendary Packers coach Vince Lombardi, who never had even watched an AFL game on television, he was wound a little extra tight leading up to the game. He felt pressure not only to win because it's the National Frickin' Football League, but he needed to win big. And he said, we got to win by 21 points, at least, to prove that the NFL is superior to the AFL. Lombardi told his team, which were 13.5-point favorites this, just before the game, and the Packers ultimately won by 25 points. Number two, the inaugural game was not officially known as the Super Bowl. We've all heard this before. I have a picture here in front of me of the AFL-NFL Sunday, January 15th, 1967, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum ticket. Kickoff, 1 o'clock. Reserve seat, $10. This ticket cannot be refunded. And it goes on to talk about, well, I don't know whose ticket this was, but it was Tunnel 24, Row 34, Seat 5. Pretty good seats, I would think, over there. It was unused. They go for big... If you can find an unused Super Bowl One ticket... It'll cost you over $100,000 if you want to put it in your memorabilia collection. AFL principal and founder of the Kansas City Chiefs owner Lamar Hunt suggested that the new championship game be known as the Super Bowl, which was an idea inspired by the extra ultra bouncy Super Bowl toy from Whammo and producers of the Frisbee and the Hula Hoop. Those are the people that I grew up with. Remember the Whammo stuff? This was popular with his kids and millions of others across America in the 60s. So NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle, however, thought the name was the, a little too gimmicky and lacking the weighty worth of his league. He even suggested calling the championship game the Pro Bowl, which has now become flag football to my astonishment, or even the big one. I don't think that would have went over well. Before settling on the AFL-NFL World Championship game. So the very first Super Bowl wasn't a Super Bowl. 
It was a championship game. But that was quite a mouthful. Journalists and broadcasters who instead followed Hunt's lead referred to the game informally as the Super Bowl, and it wasn't until the championship game's third edition, not one, not two, but number three, that Rizal agreed to follow suit and officially refer to the game as the Super Bowl. Number three, the location of the game wasn't even decided until just weeks before the kickoff. While host cities are now selected up to three years in advance, and you got to have all these bells and whistles, the L.A. Coliseum was not named as the site of the first Super Bowl until six weeks before kickoff, so neither team know what where they were playing. The big game was thrown together uh, hastily organized in some ways as an afterthought to the merger agreement. So they had their leagues. They played their respective championship games. Oh, yeah, we got to find a place to play this, this other game. And so because of that, there were over, get a load of this. When you think about how many people buy tickets to the Super Bowl and how much it costs to go to the Super Bowl now, there were 32,000 empty seats at the L.A. Coliseum. Now, they got 94,000, but 32,000 were empty. There wasn't even 62,000 people at the first, quote, superb owl party. A month earlier, more than 72,000 fans had passed through the stadium's turnstiles to watch the Green Bay Packers, who was in the Super Bowl, quote, quote, play their hometown L.A. Rams. They had more people at the Rams-Packers game than they had at the Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs. Many fans complained about the high ticket prices, which topped out at $12. Number five, the game aired simultaneously on two networks. Wow. Both CBS, which held the rights to broadcast the NFL games. I'm sorry about doing the little Harry Carey thing. I don't know what's been going on with me this past week. Maybe because baseball's like right around the corner. And Harry Carey was, you know, such a, a major towering influence in Chicago broadcasting. I used to do a pretty fair Harry Carey imitation. And sometimes I'll sit here by myself. I've been working for four hours straight. And I'll start reading the stuff I'm working on in the voice of Harry Carey. There's probably a prescription for that. But anyway, one of my favorite words Harry said was broadcasting. There you go. Both CBS, which held the rights to broadcast NFL games, and NBC, which aired the AFL games, paid a million dollars each to televise the first Super Bowl. While CBS produced the feed of the game, each network employed its own broadcast crews. There it is again. The two networks fought for ratings points as furiously as the two teams did on the field, and NBC ultimately emerged as a victor with a slightly larger audience. It remains the only joint broadcast in Super Bowl history. Number six, 15 million people were barred from watching the game. Although the Super Bowl had aired on two networks, NFL rules at the time required that its game be blacked out in the local vicinity, pissing everybody off in Los Angeles, California. That meant that 15 million viewers within a 75-mile radius of L.A. could not watch the game without fashioning makeshift aerial antenna out of coat hangers and broomsticks in order to catch the signal from another television market. Can you imagine that? Here's one of my favorites. Now, when we think of the Super Bowl now, sometimes who the halftime performer is or performers are is a bigger deal than the game itself. At least it gets a lot of publicity. Back then, factoid number seven, the halftime show featured marching bands, rocket men, and pigeons. There were no big-time musical acts or wardrobe malfunctions at the Super Bowl's first halftime show. No Beatles, no Rolling Stones, not even the Monkees. Instead, the Anaheim High School drill team... <laughs> the Anaheim 
high school drill team joined marching bands from the University of Arizona and Grambling College, high-stepping across the field. And then two rocket men from Bell Aerosystems with jetpacks filled with hydrogen peroxide launched themselves 100 feet in the air before landing on the 50-yard line. How freaking great is that? But that's not the end of it. The halftime festivities peaked with the release of 10,000 helium-filled balloons, most of which are probably still floating around the atmosphere, and hundreds of pigeons, one of which, according to a a Super Bowl participant, um, landed on the typewriter of a young sports writer named Brent Musburger, who would later host NFL Today pregame shows on CBS. It was an omen. Number eight, there were two second-half kickoffs. Love this one, too. Get this, when the game resumed after the halftime show, the Packers kicked the ball off to the Chiefs, a play that half the country missed because NBC was still in a commercial break. The previous sideline interview with entertainer Bob Hope had run long, so they were running behind. To the displeasure of Lombardi, referees whistled the play dead and told Green Bay to kick the ball off a second time so the other network could get it on TV. Wow. Number nine, the Chiefs and Packers used two different types of footballs. The two rival leagues used two competing football brands. Both were employed in the first Super Bowl. When on offense, the Packers played with the official NFL ball, the Duke by Wilson, which every kid wanted to have, to get a Duke football, which is like $25. Big money. When the possession switched to the Chiefs, they used the vaunted Spalding J5V, which was easier to pass because it was slightly skinnier and longer. And finally, number 10. Windbreakers and hooded sweatshirts might be the height of fashion among NFL coaches today, but the two opposing field generals in the first Super Bowl sported more formal-looking outerwear. Chiefs coach Hank Stram prowled the sidelines in a dark blazer, white-collar shirt, tie, and slacks, while Packers coach Vince Lombardi wore a short-sleeved dress shirt and a tie. That's how things were 58 years ago. In other news this past week, of course, Toby Keith uh, died at the age of 62. And uh, it was a great upheaval, as it should be. This was a really interesting, unique guy. While some of the music that he did didn't connect with me, a lot of it uh, did connect with me. And I think the parts of me that connected to what he was doing is that there was a, at least a, a similar background in the fact that he was a high school football player. He was a defensive end in high school, and he worked construction. He was a roughneck on oil rigs and things like that. I spent more than my years in in construction, so I connected with that. And then when the uh, oil fields weren't working for him, he went back and tried to play semi-pro football to make it into the to the bigs, the NFL. And I did that. I didn't. Go, I knew I wasn't going to the NFL. I could tell you that right now. But I I did play six years of of uh, semi-pro football. And so when somebody has that similar background, they speak from that voice, you can kind of connect with that. So uh, it was a sad deal, uh, you know, and and like a lot of uh, entertainers, the ones that are really great, they they connect with us at a level where we feel they're speaking for us and with us. And not all of them have it, but Toby Keith was able to carve out a niche in that area where he spoke to those people, guys like me even, who I'm not a country music guy per se. I like all kinds of music. But some of the songs he did, I'm like, I get that. Like he had one song, it's like, I'm not as good as I used to be. I mean, I get that. So it was sad to hear about him passing away. And, and just as a reminder, 
you know, he passed from cancer, uh, and, and there's this box on every death certificate that says cause of death. I give a shit about the cause of death. What we really should be focusing about is the cause of life. There's no box for that when you leave. There's nothing that if you could say, well, this is what this person did. It's just a f- form, and here's the cause of death, and here's the date of their death and the time. That certainly, obviously, you know, has a place in medical records. But I'm far more interested in the cause in life. And this is a guy who sold over 40 million records around the world. He, he, he met people right where they at and took them to a different place. And he admitted, you know, he's like a two-chord wonder and doesn't have a great voice. But he was able to use that intangible, that, that energy that he had to do this and, and to be that, that presence. I have a lot of respect for that. Anybody, anybody who's doing what they're supposed to do, what they what they're, came to the planet to do, uh, and, and it makes things move forward and not backwards, I'm all behind it. And, 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 and in that, while we say goodbye to Toby Keith and talking about people who are doing what they came to the world do, there's another performer, you might have heard of her, called Taylor Swift. Tomorrow is going to be a thing about this. Now, her current beau is Travis Kelsey, who's the fine tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs. And... It's become like this focal point when the camera puts, obviously, her on television, that it becomes like a like a thing. that it, I don't understand all that. I mean, I, we're watching a football game. And, well, let me put it this way. I, I don't, because I don't understand all of it, I usually have to write things out. I always say, when in doubt, write it out. And I have doubts as to why this is what it is or anything like that. So last week... I wrote it out so I could look at it and say, okay, this is this is what's going on in my head, and maybe I can make sense out of the senseless, and maybe we can find the obvious buried in the absurd. So this was last week's Wednesday rant. Actually, it's two weeks ago already. Wow, this is the 10th. And by the way, in case my sister's listening, happy birthday, Yetta. I love you. Uh, it's her birthday today, February 10th. But there, I wrote this on the, uh, I wrote this on, G- on January 31st. But it applies probably more today going into tomorrow than it did a week and a half ago. I tried to let it pass. Leave it be, I said to myself. This is just mouth fodder from lizard brains who have nothing else to do but major and minor things. There are far bigger problems in the world whether or not Taylor Swift is getting too much airtime, which is a whopping 40 seconds on average, which is about the same time given to the fans dressed in their chosen end zone garb during a three-hour game designed around drug ads with people dancing, even though their perineum might fall out as they smile their way to the prescription counter. There are enough TV timeouts to piss off the good humor man. And while I'm at it, there are a few other things far more annoying to me than Miss Swift. How about those obligatory, quote, interviews on the sideline, asking head coaches things like, what do you got to do differently in the second half to win? Are you kidding me? Or when you realize, now this is a huge one for me because I'm in the business. I still can't quite get my head around it because I'm pissed off I was, I'm not doing it probably. When you realize that announcers are getting paid millions to describe to you what you can clearly see on the flat screen yourself, it's third down. Yeah, yeah no shit, I already know that. According to various sources, Miss Swift has had a huge impact on the NFL, the league had its highest regular season viewership among women since it began tracking back in 2000. Research by the Apex Marketing Group says Swift's association with the NFL has added equivalent of about $330 million in brand value to the Chiefs and the league. 
And that is what it's all about. The NFL is all about branding. So imagine a brand where you don't have to add any voiceover for side effects, including hives, carbuncles, inflamed eye sockets, runny noses, twisted digits, bleeding ulcers, and nausea, diarrhea, tumors, constipation, hair loss, bleeding, blistering, burning, coldness, discoloration of the skin, and hallucinating that you're Ethel Merman. The best-selling pop star in the world goes to a football game, and female viewership goes through the roof. And of course, predictably, it didn't take long for those who consume large amounts of their own waste products on a regular basis to come up with some really interesting conspiracy theories. Jack Posebic, the far-right conspiracy theorist, shared a version of the theory during an interview with Roseanne Barr, the famous actress who in recent years has gone off the rails and descended to the far-right online fever swamp. He said, he believes the Democratic Party and other powers are, quote, gearing up for an operation to use Taylor Swift in the election against Donald Trump. Roseanne Barr agreed, saying that Swift is definitely somebody who has consented to speak the way the establishment wants to be spoken of. I don't even know what the hell that means. And that using her influence will be how they try to get on top of the next election. Uh-huh. I think Ms. Swift is already on top of the charts and the world, and a political election probably isn't a priority. But if it was, she wouldn't be the first celebrity to throw her weight around during an election. Listen up, Pilgrim. In 1968, Richard Nixon's people surveyed the voters and found that the humdrum middle Americans were huge fans of the Duke. Not the Duke football, John Wayne. So Tricky Dick started name-dropping him in speeches, redefining his presidency as that of a sheriff bringing law and order to the chaotic streets of America. Richard Nixon, a sheriff. Okay. The two men became good friends. John Wayne stayed loyal to Nixon throughout Watergate until it became impossible to deny that he had lied. I personally have never understood the influence of some people have over others. If a celebrity or talking head or pundit gets behind a candidate, what does it matter? Your vote counts the same as their vote. Others in the media cesspool have been taken back by the fact that Miss Swift might have dropped an F-bomb during the Chiefs game when her man caught a touchdown pass. These bastions of decency are aghast that she would have uttered a cuss word in the presence of Kelsey's mom. Uh, Mrs. Kelsey has two kids who play pro football. Jason was in Philadelphia and Travis in Kansas City. I suppose it's possible she's never heard the word before, but she's not going to blush. And for the record, Philadelphia has the market cornered on profanity, something they're really proud of, and they should be. It's a friggin', see, I changed the word there so I didn't offend you. It's a friggin' art form in the city of brotherly love. Personally, I never swear at the TV while the game's on. It's only during the commercials when those people start dancing around, hoping you'll ask your doctor about bullshentics that cranks up my more virulent and verbal vocabulary. So here's the deal for me. Back in high school, my girlfriend wore my jersey in class on Friday, the day before the game. Of all the voices I wanted to hear in a packed stadium when I made a tackle or missed one, caught a touchdown, or dropped one, was hers. She wasn't in a private booth, just out in the stands yelling with the rest of the crowd. She, along with everybody else at the game, had a colorful, lively, and vivid vocabulary. So hearing that, 
and looking up from the field of battle and seeing her with my number on was enough to make me want to take it to the limit one more time. I was about ready to walk through fire or bust through a brick wall when she had that jersey on and was yelling my name. With that said, here are three words to consider when it comes to Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Leave them alone. They're two kids in love with each other. And no matter how it turns out, I hope they just ride this out because on February 12th, no one's going to give a shit anymore. Because after the superb owl party, Super Bowl, we'll be picking apart other people we don't know instead of focusing on our own BS. I was at a very early Taylor Swift performance back in 2007 when she was just starting out. She was a nobody. I was at the Gracie Awards in New York, a red carpet affair. It's probably the last time I wore a tux. And I was at Harpo Radio then, and Gene Chatsky, as well as Catherine Murphy, were being honored. And in the break, Taylor Swift came out on stage and sang a few songs with just her guitar, and most of us didn't listen. But we're listening now. 17 years and 100 million albums later, she's being noticed more for cheering on her boyfriend than anything else. Good for her. And for the record... I hope Kansas City loses big time tomorrow. And Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy, is the MVP. So those are my thoughts on a little bit of the Super Bowl stuff um, and, and all the rest that happened this past week. And before I let you go, I just want to uh, give a heads up on this. And, and this is the reason I'm dropping the needle on this song. In about 42 days, I think it is, I have a major event coming up that uh, benefits the high school that I went to here in Chicago. It's called the Bulldog Bash. I got a bunch of stuff stacked in my studio here of, of raffle items and all kind of things sitting here. And so I look at it every morning. And this is something we've been doing for 10 years. And every year it gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And I can always use how people respond to um, requests, let's put it that way, for donations and things like that. Uh, and when they do that without hesitation, I think we're doing this in the right reason and for the right way and in the right direction. So my good friend, John Barry, who is a Grammy award-winning country music singer, uh, has been touring for 35 years, 40 years. I think he's coming up on here in just a couple of years, uh, is, is, uh, to me is the embodiment of what country music's all about. He's another guy who's like Toby Keith, who was a hardworking guy. Matter of fact, Toby Keith used to open for John Barry. Can you imagine that? So JB's had a great career. He had a bunch of gold records in the 90s. And at one point, a young Toby Keith was the opening act for John Barry. It's pretty cool. So I reached out to John probably a month ago because he's played a few concerts up here in Chicago. He's in Nashville. He's huge still. I mean, when he, when he plays at the Grand Ole Opry, it's sold out. You can't get a seat. Unlike the first Super Bowl where they had 32,000 open seats. But when John Barry, you know, does his route which is usually south of the Mason-Dixon line, standing room only, sold out, packs him in. He just finishes, uh, I don't know, 26th, 27th Christmas tour last year, and you can't get a ticket. So he's been up to Chicago a couple times, and I think some of it is a, is a uh, you know, just testing the market a little bit. And he did a couple smaller venues up here. One's called Hey Nani, and uh, I've been at the concerts. We have, you know, lunch beforehand, have a great talk, good to catch up with him. And we started talking back and forth about, you know, donation. And one of the things I thought, well, I could just get a couple of shirts signed or CDs. That'd be great. And then I thought, what if I can get a guitar from John Barry? But how do I get a guitar to John Barry? Now he's in Nashville. I have to buy a guitar, figure it out. 
So kind of let it go, actually. You know, I mean, I thought, well, we'll buy one. I could ship it. It gets to be a thing, and that's it gets to be a little bit involved. So Brian Smith, who is most likely listening to this podcast, is John's manager. And Mr. Smith is, uh, he's a renaissance man. Of my, he does everything, this guy. And this went back and forth. And I, you know, I don't want to bother John directly with this stuff a lot of times. So I sent an email to, to Brian. I said, hey, um, you know, this is what we got going on. We're doing 10 years. We help these kids. This is the thing. It's, you know, the Bears get involved and the Cubs get involved and, gee, everybody gets involved. So it's a big, it's the largest all-school reunion in Chicago. And we want to try and add new things. So went back and forth on the guitar thing. I thought, let's just leave it alone. It's not that it wouldn't be worth a hassle, but it's not worth a hassle. It gets to be involved. So we, as soon as I put it down and let it go, Brian sends me an email and says, hey, John is gifting you a guitar. He'll take care of it from his end and he'll be sending it up. Autograph for your auction. Wow. So... In addition to the computer that's arriving tonight by seven o'clock, end of business day today on a Saturday, um, there'll be a guitar in my studio as well, signed by John Barry. And that guitar will go into the auction along with some incredible things th- that the proceeds of which will benefit kids, you know, in the city that quite frankly, we don't even know. And it doesn't matter if we know them or not. We come from a neighborhood of brick and mortar, which means we take care of ourselves and everybody else the best we can. And so I'm so looking forward to, uh, to seeing the guitar that John sent. I'm so very thankful. Our team, I told everybody on the team, I'm like, you're not going to believe what John Barry did. So they were floored. And it, we're just so honored that he would get behind that and, and do that. So I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, I'd have to play a John Barry song on the way out. He's got a lot of favorites of mine. She's Taken a Shine was, I think, the first one I ever saw on – country music TV or something back in the 90s and it's gone on from there and uh, Your Love Amazes Me, number one and all, all this type of stuff. But he wrote this song called The Richest Man that speaks of his father. And when John performs, he wears work boots like his pop did every day to work. I think that is a another grounding piece for me in how he presents himself. And I, I've in all the years I've known this guy, and we're going on 20 for sure, uh, I've never felt once that he puts himself above the audience. He is with the audience. It's a huge difference. So my prediction tomorrow is San Francisco 31. It's probably kind of low ball. And it's San Francisco 31, Kansas City 30. And Brock Purdy becomes the MVP. Let's see if that happens. I don't have a whole lot of money on the game, but I have a couple of dead presidents. We'll see if they come back to me. Anyway, until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. He loved to show off At the whole wide world At his beck and call Yeah, I knew a man Thought he had it all But the rich
a big house with a ten-foot wall And though his friends were mostly bald He still thought he had it all But the richest man I ever knew Lived behind a picket fence He met my mom at 22 sit next to the richest man I ever knew I knew a man thought he had it all drew his final breath last fall well the nurse didn't quite know who to call the man who thought he had it all But the richest man I ever knew Filled the old stone church And the stories that we listened to Told what his life was worth He went to meet his maker In his only Sunday suit On the day that I said goodbye to man I ever knew Someday again I'll sit next to The richest man I ever knew